Inspired by my own journey with mental health, I founded Girls Talk, our own safe space where we share, listen, and support each other. So get cozy and join me, Adjua Burr, for some much-needed Girls Talk. Today, I'm mad excited to welcome Sophie Compton to the podcast. Sophie is the director of the incredible documentary, Another Body, a film that follows a college student's search for justice after she discovers deep fake pornography of herself circulating online. Sophie, welcome to the Girls Talk podcast. I'm beyond excited to have you on the podcast today and introduce yourself and your incredible film, Another Body, to our wonderful community. I am Sophie Compton and I co-directed this film with a good friend of mine, Ruben Hamlin. And I am a documentary filmmaker working often with women's stories of injustice. And Another Body is a documentary that follows a student um, from America who discovers that she's been deep faked into porn. So she gets a link from a friend saying, you need to check this out. And it's a Pornhub profile, which has six fake videos of her that have been manipulated with AI to put her face on porn actors' bodies. And the account also shares like her name, her hometown, her college. So it makes it really easy for other people to come and find her and start messaging her and following her. And she's just so devastated and shocked. And this is the last thing that she would have ever imagined happening to her. Like she's an engineering student. She's really geeky, but she's an unbelievable human being because rather than letting this completely cow her and silence her, like it does so many often women, um, she goes on a mission to find out who did it and finds a lot of other victims actually of one perpetrator along the way. And so the film kind of turns into a bit of an investigation where her and another girl that she finds from her college who's been targeted go and take on basically spaces on the internet that are making and um, like distributing deep fake porn. How did you come across this particular topic? Yeah, people don't really know that deep fake technology was created to make porn of women non-consensually. Oh my God. Yeah, that's like the origin of the technology. It's called deepfakes because this person on Reddit called r slash deepfakes posted the code and was like, hey, you can use this to make porn of women. So these communities started building up right from the beginning. This is like 2018 around non-consensual porn. Then the media picked it up and there was this kind of media panic around Maybe this is going to be used in elections and it might be a threat to democracy. And still, and all the way through, it has been consistently a violence against women issue, which has been so underreported. And it's, you know, 96% of deepfakes are non-consensual porn of women. So like that is the problem with regard to deepfakes. And yeah, that hasn't got nearly as much attention. I had no idea. So what distinguishes deepfake image-based violence from other forms of online manipulation? Deepfakes are when like a video or an image is manipulated with AI. And the reason why they're quite scary is that they're so effective at putting any, basically you can make anybody say or do anything on camera. And the technology is so good that if you have quite a lot of video material of someone, you can make it really, really convincing. So... It means that someone doesn't even need to hack that person's 
phone or or do any of the other things that you would normally have to do to get like naked images of someone you can literally scrape somebody's instagram story and then put them into porn without their consent so it's what it's doing in terms of the conversation around image-based sexual abuse is also making us really think about victim blaming in a different way yes because you can't say why did you post that picture or why did you share that you know all these things that people hear time and time again Deepfakes, in a way, should combat that because all that victims like Taylor did was exist on the internet. And yet they're still met with, you know, when Taylor went to the police, the police was like, what did you do to piss this person off? What did you do to bring this upon yourself? Without realizing that the only thing that she could have done to protect herself was not exist on the internet whatsoever, which is completely not acceptable as a solution to this problem. So through your research, I mean, you you touch on it a lot in the film, but there is this element of doxing. Were those two mixed quite often, deep fake image-based violence and also the element of doxing? Because it feels to me that the both came like hand in hand. Yeah, definitely. When people are targeting people that they know, doxing is a way of increasing the threat. So it depends on what their motivations are. Mm. But doxing makes it even more dangerous for that person because there's like a tangible physical threat and like really sadly quite a lot of image-based sexual abuse like forums and I don't mean just deep fakes I mean all types are like categorized by location on the internet so yes yes there'll be ones like girls from my town or girls from my uni or that kind of thing and so there is definitely this connection between this digital violence and then very tangible physical locations, which can make it so terrifying because, you know, I've spoken to so many people, especially people on these kind of who've been doxxed or who their location has been shared, where you're like, every time you walk out the door, you think the person that I walked past, have they seen the videos? Or when you go to the shops, when you go to the library, it it kind of then operates almost like a form of surveillance. Like you're always looking over your shoulder amongst many other things as someone who's like prone to being quite paranoid that is one of my worst nightmares but I'm interested to know who are these people who create this sort of content yeah so in the research actually what we found like researchers like the amazing Daniel Citron have found that it's not just some unemployed person living in mum's basement with like no job prospects like the research is that it's actually way more connect it's it's people in our communities it's like there was someone that was a chaplain there have been professors there have been you know sports people actually a congressman on the house floor like shared um, a non-consensual intimate imagery like as a laugh so this stereotype that it is always completely disenfranchised like young men that have no opportunities and no job prospects I'm sure that there's some truth to that and there is definitely this like male bonding thing that happens and people like bigging each other up and being like love your style man and like you're you know doing it for the culture doing it for the community and there's this feeling of like us against the world but I think it is giving that community too much credit to say that this is all just people that are completely on the fringes of society like they are people like within our workplaces and within our cultures and so that's why we need to be targeting this in that like cultural level like at schools in universities in uh, college campuses um yeah in offices so 
Talking of the anonymous message boards like 4chan, why do you think they've contributed to the proliferation of this content? I think people can hide behind anonymity and then they can say and do stuff that they would never dream of saying and doing in real life. I also think that there's a feeling of it not being real. Yeah. They're not confronted with the consequences of their action. So, for example, on the boards that have come out in response to the documentary, it's like, why would a woman put pictures of herself and not expect this to happen? And it's not even real. But it's also really confused logic because on one hand, it's like, it's not even real. What's the big deal? She's making a fuss about it. And there's this discourse that you're like a simp or you're taking it too seriously, which is such a victim blaming attitude, it's such a misogynistic attitude. Like if you stand up for yourself, if you have emotions in response to this, you're shrill or you're making a big deal and, and that kind of thing. So on one hand, there's that like the minimization of the experience. And then on the other hand, there is like really targeted hatred of women, you know, specific comments, I hate women, specific go and get this person, tear her down, all of that kind of thing. Um, and I think that it's become a world unto itself. And I think that because most yeah. people don't understand it and don't know how to access it, it's quite hard to navigate. Threads kind of disappear. You have to work, look through all these archives. Like no lawmakers know what 4chan is. They don't understand the language. They're probably a bit afraid of it. It makes them feel old. So they just do not know how to respond. Have you and your team been targeted? Obviously, you touched on the fact that they are fueled by retaliation as well, these communities. What sort of backlash have you both had? Yeah, um, there has been a backlash. It's been mostly directed towards me as the woman, but it's been yeah. by far, far, far and beyond. So one of the amazing contributors in the film is an ASMR artist called GB, who's, you know, one of the like top ASMR artists and um, got a really amazing, you know, dedicated following and loads of deep fakers target women with an online profile and YouTubers. Yeah. And yeah, GB has been targeted really viciously as a response to her speaking out about this because she's become a figurehead. And something that I think is quite interesting in these spaces is that one of the other like components to it is it's not just the violence against women and the hatred of women. It's also often when you're targeting celebrities or on people with an online following, there's this parasocial relationship where they kind of love slash feel ownership over that person because GB does yeah. ASMR. So people listen to her voice a lot and they've interacted with her a lot. They kind of feel like they own her. They kind of feel like they have the right to just do what they want with her body. So when she then spoke out about deep fakes, you know, all the people, the millions of people that have been watching deep fakes of her, it just got their backs up massively. So yeah, wow. they were trying to find where she lives. They found like her address, her grandparents' address. They copied and pasted the board number of every single board that we show in the film that are all anonymized, you know, pseudonymized. So none of it is real to try and find out who Taylor was to try and then reach her and, and contact her. And what were the precautions obviously you took? You can see them obviously during the film. I think often with any creative storytelling, it's like the limitations that become the really exciting creative part. And so yeah. we realized that we had to anonymize everything. So we had to 
recreate her entire online world. We had to find a way to represent her college campus without showing her. So we used like a video game engine software to like make 3D animation scenes. We worked with like an amazing kind of crowdsourced group of women to film, like self-record themselves at home and in their environment. We worked with this incredible um, filmmaker called Ethan Eng, and he gave us like his whole back catalog archive of photography. So it ended up being this puzzle piece where we almost braided together all these different elements and they were all this like big protective shield around Taylor. And I think it's meant that the film has a really kind of weird and distinct like visual language. A hundred percent. Which I'm so glad about. And I think in a way we thought about the internet as being this like massive archive of imagery. And we were able to then use all these different like internet forms and internet like textures, I guess, to tell this like online story. Well, I think also all those different textures, they almost like represent how many women this is this Mm. deeply affects you know it felt like this incredible collage of the many women that this has affected the way that the faces change throughout the film Mm. the way it doesn't feel like although it is their story it feels so kind of reflective of the many women that it, it it affects it feels like a community you know oh I love that so much and that's totally what we hoped and we felt and it was really intentional because this abuse aims to silence people and it aims to shame people and minimize and it so often succeeds and you can see how somebody's life gets smaller and smaller and you know actually one of the contributors in the film talks about um dealing with an eating disorder as a response and wanting to yes. make herself smaller and just that feeling of like, I think she says it, you know, if if my body was smaller, people would notice me less. And that's so poignant and so reflective of how this abuse does shrink people's lives. But the way out of that, as I'm sure you've heard a million times from people that you've worked with, is female solidarity and finding other people that share your experience there's so many tendrils that point to other conversations that Mm -hmm. we as a community need to have about porn, about sex work, about women, about violence. Do you know what I mean? It all feels like the same thing, you know? And the fact that you're silenced over something that you haven't done is a very, very, very weird concept. But it just, you know, the beautiful thing about it, I think it's just that, like you said, that, that element of solidarity, the fact that through talking from a place of lived experience we we have no idea how many people we touch by just doing that and it's such a scary thing to do and by no means to all our listeners do I think you need to just go out there and share your story like you know think about it you know take the time but it's like once we do and when we do it's magical that is so much more powerful than what those particular individuals are doing on on the likes of 4chan. But I mean, to go back to these like 4chan, like these technology companies, how can they play a role in preventing the spread of of deep fakes? Mm. There is so much responsibility to be put on tech companies. So if you think about how this abuse is happening, 
Okay, there's going to be some bad actors always. There's going to be some people that are doing this in a malicious way. And unfortunately, they're pretty tech savvy. They're pretty good at anonymizing themselves. They're probably hosting. I know. That's the scary thing. I'm like, you know, in the film, they're like, you're, they're showing like all the pointers on how to do it. I'm like, oh my God, this is, I wouldn't even know. I could hardly switch a computer on. <laughs> I know. I know. They're going to be so much better at doing the, the internet than any police force will ever be. And like, that's just a reality. They are going to be one step ahead. So it is going to be really hard to kind of shut down the people that really, really, really want to do this. But what we've allowed is for this to become normalized. So the biggest deepfake porn website is getting 14 million hits a month. It's the first thing that comes up on Google when you put in deepfake porn. You can basically put deepfake porn plus any, you know, a whole load of celebrities that you might have heard of and it will just come straight up. Therefore, there are so many people that are watching deepfakes that don't actually realize that what they're doing is a problem. People might even perceive it as like a genre of porn. It's not, it's abuse. Porn is a profession and it's, um, it's a consensual activity that people decide to do. This is abuse. So it's a completely different thing. And I think we need to like separate those two things out. And so like, for example, Google, we're like on a bit of a mission against Google because most people, access these websites through Google. Like we think the internet's impossible to manage and rule, it's unruly, it's this huge kind of like amorphous thing that exists on some cloud that we don't really know what it is. But realistically, like we do go through pathways, there are gatekeepers, you have a service provide, internet service provider, you have a web browser, you have a search engine, or you have a social media platform, or pretty much always to get to whichever site you wanna to get to. If you Google how to harm a cat, Google has classified animal abuse as harmful content. So what comes up is not like ways to harm your cat. It com what comes up is reasons why you should not harm your cat and like animal abuse charities. If you Google how to make deepfake porn of my girlfriend, you will get tutorials and you will be taken directly to deepfake porn websites where my girlfriend is the kind of key term. That is a choice that Google has made. And it's made it because mm -hmm. we're not putting pressure on them to say that is completely unacceptable choice. So we think that deepfake pornography that is non-consensual needs to be made illegal because that makes it much easier to go to tech companies and be like, why are you promoting illegal content? At the moment, it's not illegal. So we can go and say, you know, why are you promoting harmful content? And then it's just way harder for like activists to really like have bite with them. But, you know, then we can go and we can say, why are sites dedicated to violence against women not considered to be harmful in your eyes? And actually, we've had some pretty good progress on that like when we started it really did feel like the wild west that was never ever ever going to be regulated at all and now like because of the survival-led movement because of people speaking to the press because of people telling their story there is a growing like public awareness campaign and we've been like directly getting people to email google because we want them to receive a thousand emails from members of the public because they have to talk about it in their board meetings and they realize that it might harm their profits and all that kind of thing. And we did actually then get a response back from one of the Google like trust and safety people being like, we're gonna look into this. So who knows, but we all have the power to say that that is not acceptable and that we don't support it. Um, so I wanna talk about the survivors of image-based sexual trauma. You know, we spoke about the layers and, and in the film, there's a lot of the conversation is attached to kind of mental health and how they're having to navigate that. So how does this type of violence distort 
a person's sense of self? Mm. I think it's experienced first and foremost as a violation. Mm -hmm. Everyone that we speak to says, I felt violated. And I think that there's this really wrong idea that because something happens online, it doesn't happen to a real person. It's not real, but it's felt in your body. It's felt in a really tangible way to be like a threat to your identity. And I think that something that people find really difficult is the idea of all of the eyes on you and the way that people are looking at you and the idea of that being the first thing that someone might encounter when they come when they find you or come across you as a human being is that and you're framed in a context that you didn't give consent to people maybe are making comments on the videos which are really disturbing or derogatory and it's often you know there's often a lot of critique about your physical appearance as well and it's not just the fact that you're being so overtly sexualized it's also the way that then there can also be really demeaning comments and really derogatory comments and i think that we just don't validate how online abuse affects people enough and the one of the other things is that it it kind of exists on an axis of time so it can keep coming up again and again you know and you don't know where it's coming from once an, a video is up on a porn website it will have been basically like spewed out to a load of other like these high repeat websites that kind of will re-upload it re-uploaded so the image is out there it's proliferating and you don't know how far it could reach and it's so out of your control um and taylor also spoke about you know the thing that she said was so weird is like your eyes looking back at you and the way that her face was moving you know wow. because yeah. because you know someone else is manipulating that and and that creating you in the image that they want to see and they they're making you pull faces that you've never pulled and it can be so disturbing and i think i actually really wanted to kind of go back to your beautiful point about shame and i think that this is one of the big questions of how we address this because in a very real way when the stuff is online if you are sharing your story like you will revictimize yourself so on some levels yes it's going to make things worse and i completely get why people therefore decide not to speak out about this it's like so unfair that the cost is so high for somebody to take things into their hands but i think you're so right as well that if this abuse aims to shame and aims to silence like each person that finds it within themselves to just keep doing what they were doing to post whatever they wanted to post to wear whatever they wanted to wear to send the nudes consensually that they wanted to send and not be cowed by this like that's such a massive act of rebellion and it's such a massive act of agency and it kind of just takes the sting out of this attempt to squash you and so yeah i mean lots of people that watch our film come out of it and say Oh my god, I'm going to make all my social media accounts private. And I respect that. But I would love to urge everyone not to as much as they feel comfortable because then 100% of the time basically the perpetrators win and it's a huge thing to ask. You know, for GB to speak out, for GB to keep doing what she's doing like is really hard. But I really do believe that it has that kind of power that is really subtle and minute but it has a ripple effect that goes outwards and i think it's so huge you know going back to that kind of shame element it's like you know i spoke to you briefly on email about my own kind of story about being hacked 
And it's, you know, I haven't like spoken openly about that. And I did. It was really as simple as you said, like, I just shut the laptop. Mm. It's so mad as someone who like talks about this, who creates a platform to talk about all these things. And I completely internalized that shame immediately. I was like, well, you know, the eyes are on me already. Like these images are out there. I kind of was asking for it. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it's like, no. It's a complete violation for someone yeah. to manipulate your images to, to it's, 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 it's. Uh, yeah. First off, like, thank you for talking about your experience. That's really powerful. But you know what is so striking to me is that every single person I've spoken to has had one thing that they're like, it's probably my fault because this. Mm-hmm. For some people, it might be, I can't make a fuss about this because I don't have it as bad as somebody else has it. Or I did spend all that time on the internet or I did, you know, get into a relationship with that person or there's always something that someone's going to feel like it's their fault. And then when you're outside that as an observer, it's just it's so clear that the consent has been violated. And that's why I think it's so important that sex workers are a part of this movement and People totally disregard sex workers when they've had their consent violated because they're like, you're a sex worker. But we need to stand behind every single person to make it as simple as it should be, is that if somebody uses your image and shares your intimate image without your consent, that is a violation. And the behavior that we need to change is not your behavior, it's the behavior of the perpetrator who felt like they had the right to your body, to your image, to your identity. And the language has to change. You know, I have so many friends, both in the public eye and not, who have been not necessarily just deep fakes, but like this story will kind of resonate with them so much, you know, just like boyfriends, like blackmailing them with imagery. Like, you know, I just, I got, it brought me back to school. It brought mm. me back to school when I think of the many friends I had who's deeply private imagery was circulated around every single public private school in fucking England. And it was horrific. And most of the time, they were always the ones that were kind of like, you know, held accountable for that. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I had friends who would, would like expelled from school. Yeah. And the men were just like left to kind of roam around. Totally. You know, fine to take their exams. You know, it was just like, it's fucking disgusting, do you know what I mean? And it's like, it's it's so much larger than just us doing the work. Do you know what I mean? Like everyone has to be part of this. If you've experienced image-based violence or you know someone who has, where do they start to get support? Mm. Well, there are so many amazing organisations now springing up. It depends where you live, but I'd say the first port of call is find someone that you trust to talk to and just get the emotional support that you need. And then in the UK, there's the Revenge Porn Helpline, which can take down notifications. They can speak to, you know, they'll do a lot of work on your behalf to try and like get it actually taken down as much as possible, tell your legal rights. Um, and the Cyber Civil Rights Initiative is the kind of comparison in the US. Then there's amazing legal support from people like Carrie Goldberg Law, who's like fighting the fight through in the courts. Um, so the impact campaign that I run with Ruben and Elizabeth uh, Woodward, who's the producer of the film, is called My Image, My Choice. 
And we have a, a like a part of our website where people can share stories either anonymously or publicly. And then we help get people's story out there if they want to like speak about things in a more public way. And we've also got a list of resources. Um, and then there's also the amazing um, Adam Dodge at End Tab who kind of helps, you know, working with survivors. But yeah, there's loads and loads and loads of great resources now appearing. So just know that you are not alone and that there is support there if it's needed. And we'll make sure to kind of um, put those resources on our podcast information for any of our listeners who want to get to those. But I want to leave it here and say, what do you hope people can like take away from watching the film? Yeah, I think it's that understanding that you as an individual, even if you're not supported by the law and you're not supported by the institutions, you have agency and power to get what you need and you can get so much further than you would have ever have believed possible. Like Taylor is the most unlikely activist. She did not want to be an activist. She did not set out to do that. And yet what that's done, you know, her decision to keep going, her decision to find out for herself who's been doing this and her decision to try and use her experience to like make change has led her way beyond where she could have expected you know she was invited to the white house recently and she still was just like why have i been invited to the white house in her mind she couldn't really compute that she had contributed so much to this conversation that she was being honored and and invited to like share you know her experience to the highest like level in the us um, but for us, we were like, yeah, of course you've been invited because you've done incredible things with your story and what your, your story has validated so many other people's experiences. And so I hope that people just kind of capture a bit of that hope and possibility in whatever way they want to use it. Because like you said, you know, you're not alone for your community, for my community. The biggest takeaway I hope you can get from this conversation is like, you're not alone. You know, I, I'm always brought back to the moment I shared like some of my deepest, darkest things with like a community of young women. And I was then in turn like celebrated and introduced to another community of amazing women who understood and, and met me where I was at, you know, and didn't judge me. So. I think, you know, when you're ready, tell your story. If you're not ready, find a community where you can share your story in private or or just find someone. You know, it's there are so many ways that you can support yourself and, 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 and help yourself. Yeah. And as you know, like what comes back is just, oh, my God, it feels so good. Like those things mm-hmm. that have been sitting on you for so long, when they come out, it's like you are lighter, you are released and it's always I've never seen someone share with the you know with people that they trust and not have that feeling of really being like lifted up oh thank you so much Sophie for taking the time to talk to me um I know the when's the film out so it's out in the US at the moment um it's been on cinemas and now it's on Apple TV and Amazon amazing well thank you for doing the work where I'm very grateful to have had you on the podcast. So thank you so, so, so much. Thank you for, for doing the, the work and building oh. a beautiful community of human beings to get the right conversations going. Oh, no, my absolute pleasure. So to my lovely listeners, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And more importantly, I'm thinking of you. Um, and even more importantly, mad, mad, mad amounts of love. 
Thank you so much, Sophie, for joining us on the podcast today. You can learn where to stream Another Body by heading to anotherbodyfilm.com. We may have stopped talking, but that doesn't mean you have to. Talk to us on our Instagram at Girls Talk or send us your poetry, essays, stories, artwork or anything else you want to share at girlstalk.com. This week's podcast was produced by Girls Talk and Wicked Child Studio. Original music composed by Mikey Long. Mad, mad, mad love to Joe Malone London for their generous support of the podcast. And as always, we are always here and we're always listening. I'm Adrua Boa and this was the Girls Talk podcast.